The Old Testament lesson is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, uh, this text that uh, I've just read from Isaiah, obviously, is the text that's being referred to in Matthew's Gospel. This is where the sign uh, is presented. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that would be helpful in terms of understanding the original context with, within which the sign is given is to understand a little bit about what's going on uh, in, that, in, the, in the situation then in which the, uh, the sign is promised. So what really is going on? Well, if you look at the book of Isaiah and you look at chapter 7 and you read the verses that precede these verses, you do, are introduced to uh, a king by the name of Ahaz who's in a tight spot. Uh, he is the king of Judah, uh, but he's fairly young. He comes to the throne uh, when he's 20 years old. He only lives 16 years. And uh, while he is on the throne, uh, his neighbors to the north, uh, Israel, uh, Ephraim it's, uh, is the term or the word that's used, the name is used to refer to Israel, the northern kingdom, <coughs> and Syria decide to uh, head south and pay him a little visit. And what they mean to do is uh, conquer Jerusalem and establish uh, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah as a vassal state with a uh, hand-selected king to take the place of Ahaz. So that's the, the scenario that uh, uh, precedes this particular uh, conversation. And what you have uh, in the course of the, of the story is uh, we see uh, Ahaz uh, subjected to what you could say is the fog of war. He, he's uh, uncertain about the future. He's uncertain what uh, he uh, sh uh, should do. He's afraid. Uh, the language that we have there in the first couple of verses uh, refers to his heart and the heart of all the people of Jerusalem as shaking like uh, trees shake when the wind blows through them. They're just uh, really not in a good place when it comes to their uh, confidence concerning what's about to happen and what they should do. Um, but more to the point is the fact that uh, not only is he sort of in the dark about how things will play out, but he's in the dark in a more significant way. He's a faithless man. And there's evidence of his faithlessness that uh, we have in other places in Scripture, and I'll refer to those in a minute. But Isaiah is the prophet who's addressing him. And Isaiah, with his son, meets him, and uh, he's sent to encourage him. 
And Isaiah, in the sixth chapter of uh, Isaiah, uh, experiences what it's like to be at, the, at sort of the, uh, the level of the commanding heights. You know, when you think about a battle, uh, the people on the ground uh, often refer to it as the fog of war because they can't really see what's going on around them. They don't have perspective. Uh, but generals, commanders often are looking down from some high place and can see how the battle is unfolding. And what we have with Isaiah in that episode in the sixth chapter of Isaiah is that classic scene where uh, Isaiah sees the Lord, you know, and his tr the train of the Lord fills the temple. Uh, and in a sense, he's both uh, in the temple, but he's also in the heavenly court in that high and lifted up place. And there are the seraphim, the burning ones, who call out, holy, holy, holy. And what we see at that point is Isaiah recognizing his own sinfulness. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he just like collapses in the presence of God. By the way, this is a good indication that you've actually been in the presence of God. When you recognize your own unworthiness and uh, your sinfulness and God's holiness, Episodes in which people say, yeah, I had an encounter with God the other day and I was just filled with all sorts of warm, fuzzy feelings. Probably uh, you're either dealing with a different God or you made it all up. But anyway, so that's something that you can use as a kind of a litmus test as you're interacting with people. Do people really come to see themselves as they should see themselves in the presence of the holy God? Well, that's an indicator that you've actually had an encounter with God. But Isaiah is sent to encourage Ahaz in the midst of this tight spot. And in that uh, episode, he uh, uh, tells uh, Ahaz that uh, what he has to worry, what he's worried about, he doesn't really need to worry about because <clears throat> uh, the Lord will address the, the, the threat and he'll be delivered and the people of, of, of Judah will be delivered. And uh, in the verses that precede this, uh, verses seven and nine, we're told this. Uh, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. He's the king of Syria. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that's uh, Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of uh, Ramalah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And that last statement, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be in, uh, firm at all, is addressed to Ahaz. So the promise is made to Ahaz that <coughs> these plans that his enemies have created, laid out, are not going to uh, produce the results that they intend. In fact, their kingdoms will be shattered. Uh, nevertheless, Ahaz needs to get a hold of himself. He needs to get a grip. And what he needs to get a grip on is his faith. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And then he's told in the, what follows is, uh, well, let me read it for you. Verse 10. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And then Ahaz responds, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So that's the invitation. Ask for a sign. And then what follows is that pregnant passage that we think of at this time of year uh, rela related to the virgin conceiving, bearing a child, and that child being named Emmanuel. Now, 
The sign itself is what is intended to firm up Ahaz and give him something to believe in. Um, now, he was a weak and faithless character, and we learn about uh, what, he's, what he's like in other places. For example, Second uh, Kings chapter 16 and Second uh, Chronicles chapter 28. And, and what we discover when we see him in action is that this guy, uh, his name sounds like Ahab, and he might as well be the southern version of the guy. He's uh, uh, not only faithless, he is uh, firm in his faithlessness. Uh, over the course of his reign, not only does he uh, uh, cast images of Baal uh, and worship Baal and Ashtoreth throughout uh, the kingdom of Judah in the high places, he even sacrifices his own sons, burning them uh, as sacrifices to Molech uh, in Judah. And uh, at one point, uh, when he uh, is, uh, you know, when he finds himself in Damascus, he sees uh, an altar there that he's impressed by. And he sends instructions back to the high priest in, in Jerusalem to make a, a copy of what he's seen so that the offerings that are offered in Jerusalem uh, can be more effective. And that's basically the logic. He, his logic is, is we've been defeated by these gods. Therefore, those are the gods we ought to worship. And so uh, we're told at one point um, in Second Chronicles 28, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. This was a, this was a, um, a man who uh, was uh, weak in faith, but strong in faithlessness. And it, it's at this point uh, that Isaiah is addressing him and telling him to be firm in faith and ask for a sign. Now, when he asks for a sign, Ahaz makes a pious show. And the, and the pious show is uh, what I read to you before. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. There's a, a remarkable statement that a fellow by the name of LaRochefco made a number of years ago. This is back during uh, the wars that preceded the French Revolution. But uh, LaRochefco was a philosophist, kind of a savant and uh, a wit. And uh, some of his eclectic sayings you can find at your local Barnes & Noble. But one of the great ones is this. Hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. In other words, hypocrites acknowledge through their hypocrisy what is right. They don't live up to it. They live a different way. But if they were, you know, completely honest with themselves and everybody else, they would say to you, yeah, I'm a faithless, lying uh, murdering um, thief. <laughs> That's really what I am. But they never present themselves that way. They present themselves as something else. And by doing so, they're acknowledging, reluctantly, but inevitably, that right is right and wrong is wrong, and they're on the wrong side. That's why they're pretending. You see how that follows? In other words, uh, when it comes to right and wrong, things really aren't up for grabs. Even the wicked know what right and wrong is, and that's why they try to pass themselves off as just. But in this particular episode, uh, what is Ahaz up to? Well, I think 
Very often in our lives, we try to pass ourselves off as more pious than we are because we don't want to actually have to deal with our impiety. And what you have in this particular episode is by not asking for a sign, what we have is Ahaz is actually not, you know, avoid, he's not just simply, you know, he's not doing what he's claiming to do, which is not put God to the test. He's asking for God not to put him to the test. Because if he asked for a sign and he got it, what would have to follow? Faith, trust, confidence in the one who gave him the sign. And so, on the surface, it seems as though he's pious and says, I don't want to put God to the test, but in actual fact, he's a hypocrite and he doesn't want to be put to the test. And we think about that in the course of our own lives, there are times when we avoid things that we know to be the case because we don't want to be put to the test. Now, the, the, the sign that he's given is a remarkably enigmatic one. Think about it. He could ask for anything. He could ask for something as deep as Sheol, you know, in other words, something that draws uh, something out of the land of the dead. He could ask for something that is on display in the heavens. He doesn't ask for either. And, He's given the sign, and that sign is there will be a virgin who will conceive, and that child that she bears will be called Emmanuel. Now, what kind of sign is that? Well, it's a sign that requires faith <laughs> in the sign itself. In other words, it's not on display. Let me give you an example of how this is. you can contrast this particular sign with another sign. In the Aeneid, Aeneas, great warrior, uh, is leading... Uh, his family out of Troy as it's under, under siege as the Greeks are going from house to house. You recall the episode at the end of, of uh, uh, the Iliad in which uh, you have Odysseus and the others who have been in the Trojan horse. They get out, they open the gates, the Greeks enter into the city and go from house to house, burning the city down and slaughtering everyone in sight. Well, it's during that episode that uh, Aeneas runs home and uh, he wants to flee, he wants to get his family and, and, and escape, but his father uh, doesn't want to leave Ascanius because this is his hometown, he wants to die with it. And so Aeneas says, well, I guess I'll have to stay with him. And it's at that moment that his son Ilius uh, uh, has a, a crown of flame, blue flame appear upon his head. Now there's a sign for you, blue flame on your head. It's hard to miss. Anyway, they try to put it out, and they can't because it's a sacred fire. And then when Ascanius, grandpa, sees this, he says, wow, that's pretty good. I need something even more clear than that. Uh, and then he prays to Jupiter, give us one more clear sign. And at that moment, there's thunder and a meteor streaks across the sky. Now, that's a sign. That's a sign that everybody can see. And when Ascanius sees that sign, he says, I'm good to go. That's a very different sign than the sign that we're being presented with here. The sign we're being presented with here itself requires faith to believe. Think about it. You get news that someone's expecting, a woman is expecting. Where does your mind go? Right? You don't think virgin. You think something else, right? And then the child of this woman, when this child is born, is going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the very statement, God with us, 
is something that, again, requires some faith to believe because we don't see God. Think about it this way. We know that God promised to be with his people, Israel, uh, and dwell uh, and, uh, in the tabernacle uh, in that special place above the Ark of the Covenant. But there's no visible representation. There's just an empty space. He is indeed with them and dwelling in that space, but there's nothing to see. It's a sign that in itself requires faith to believe. Now, what we have uh, with this, uh, when it comes to our Lord, He is the one who fulfills this sign, right? He is born of the Virgin. As Tom alluded earlier in the course of his prayer, I'm certain that there were people who wondered about that. Nevertheless, it was something that could be believed because it had been promised by God who can do anything, including bring a person into the world in this way. And the promise that he will be called Emmanuel is an allusion not only to God's presence with his people, the Israelites, uh, as they are traveling through the wilderness and as he dwells among them in the temple, but something even further back, a kind of, a, a kind of fellowship that once was enjoyed by a man and a woman in a garden. God dwelled and walked among them in that place in the cool of the day, we're told, in the early chapters of Genesis. But that particular episode in the garden, when we think about it, I think often it stirs a kind of longing in us to return to the garden, to, to be again in the presence of God. But we know that we're uh, cast out, that we are the children of those uh, first parents who sinned, breaking God's command, and consequently were cast into the wilderness. And so they were sent into exile, and ever since we are born into the wilderness. We are born as exiles, uh, out of fellowship with God. And there's this kind of longing that we have to return to the garden. It takes different, it, ex it finds different uh, expressions in different places in the world. But uh, this, I think, fundamental longing is characteristic of, of all human beings. But we cannot make our way back into the garden uh, with our own devices and, and stratagems, and et cetera. We can't create for ourselves a heaven on earth. We can't make a utopia for ourselves. The word utopia, as I've noted before, is an interesting word. When we think about the, the term, you know, sort of a, a paradise comes to mind where everything is, is uh, just the way it should be. But the word literally means no place, so it's a kind of joke. Utopia is no place, but being in the presence of God is the thing that we're longing for because in the presence of God, everything is right. And so we have this longing, this, this uh, longing that I think is behind many of the things that uh, even people who don't know God uh, are striving for. But we cannot gain entry because we're also told at the end of chapter 3 in Genesis that there is someone to prevent us from getting in. There's a cherubim. And by the way, biblical cherubim are not like those little pudgy kids that you see with the little wings in 18th century and 19th century you know, illustrations. They're pretty freaky scary. And there is a sword, a flaming sword, that's intended to keep us out, 
But what we have in the promise uh, that we see here and in the person of Christ is a God who goes into the wilderness to get to us. He seeks us and finds us and goes with us, God with us. And in a sense, we enjoy presence in a kind of garden, but it's not an Epicurean garden. This is something to think about. If you're familiar with uh, the Epicurean school of philosophy, they're known as the garden philosophers. Now, today, when we think of the Epicurean sort of palate, we think of a person with really refined taste, you know, enjoys good food. And that, I think, is in the spirit of the Epicurean outlook. The garden philosophers kind of withdrew from the world to enjoy the, the, you know, the company of their friends, uh, surrounded by cheese and really fine wine. Um, and so when a person is told you're an Epicurean, it means you have good taste. But uh, this is not what we're thinking about when we think about life in the garden in the presence of God. The original garden that our parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed was a royal garden in which work was performed and done. And it was in that environment that the royal business of the king was conducted. And they were his regents, performing work and resting in his presence and enjoying his presence. And that is what we have restored in Christ. There's a marvelous character to the kind of uh, rest that we enjoy as Christians. When we think about the Garden of Eden, many people, when they think of it, they think of a place kind of like that Epicurean garden, the Garden of Epicurus, where everybody's just sort of lounging around and enjoying good food and fine uh, drinks. But we know, based on the account in Scripture, that work was performed in the garden. But it was a different kind of work than the work that we generally perform in the world. I know that uh, when I think about the work that I perform, I think if I don't get to work, I don't get to eat, <laughs> right? And I have a kind of, there's a kind of anxiety that characterizes our labors in the world because there's a kind of contingency that we feel and it's legitimate, but nevertheless, something is different about our labors now than what Adam and Eve enjoyed when they were in the presence of God. But in Christ, we have restored to us a kind of ease in our labors. Again, Tom uh, alluded to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're told in the Sermon on the Mount that we shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't be anxious about what we eat. We shouldn't be anxious about what we wear. Because the God who gives the flowers their clothes and feeds the birds of the air is the same God who cares for us. We rest in his presence so that even when we are laboring, our labors are characterized by a kind of ease and, a, and an absence of anxiety. And that's because we are laboring for our king and we're laboring in his presence and we know that he cares for us and provides for us. So even our labors don't have the kind of the quality of anxious toil that that uh, pagan labors la people laboring uh, as pagans experience. Furthermore, we're not trying to earn God's favor. 
Um, it's not as though we're trying to impress the Lord with our labor so that we can win his affection. His love has already been put on display for us by coming out into the wilderness to meet us and to be with us and to, and to provide for us and to fellowship with us. God with us is a gracious gift. And that's really the thing to keep in mind. When we think about Christmas, when we think about Christmas, we think about, well, I know, I'll, I'll tell you. When I was a kid and I thought about Christmas, I thought about gifts, right? Be honest, so did you. I'd get up at four in the morning, go down to the Christmas tree, peek, you know, under the wrapping and trying to guess what was in each one of the different boxes. And then, you know, on Christmas morning, my parents would just sort of like string this out, give me the really bad gifts first and save the really good one for the last. You know, the first gifts would be like socks and underwear and stuff like that. And then you get to the really good thing at the end. But how did this even get going? What, what's the sort of the, sort of the, the, sort of the impetus? What inspires this whole project of giving gifts? The fact that we have received the greatest gift of all. God has given himself to us in Christ. Now, if you think there's a better gift than that, there's a name for you, idolater. That is the best gift of all because he is the source of all good things. So when he gives you himself, then he gives you what? Everything. Everything. And we know that all the promises in Scripture are yes, where? In Christ. So God gives us himself, and consequently we can rest. So we, even as we labor, do so in a restful way. But now rest isn't a work. It's not as though uh, resting in God is somehow uh, something that uh, secures his favor for us. Uh, the grace of God is real. The grace of God is known in Christ. And faith-filled living is living as though you live in a grace-filled world. And you do. It's a grace-filled world, and you believe it, and I believe it. And if we are firm in that faith, we'll be able to stand up under any opposition or trial or adversity that comes our way because that's what's real. What can't be seen is what's really real. Christ in us, the hope of glory. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what's real. Do you believe it? You know, there's a great line. It's, it's kind of a rhetorical line. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? God is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that uh, he has fulfilled the law for us. He has been our sacrifice for sin. He has been raised from the dead, and, that, and we've been raised with him. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, for all of the good things that uh, you have given to us and promised to us. And we pray, Lord, that we'll believe uh, the promises and enjoy the grace. And thank you for these gifts, because it's in Jesus' name we say these things. Amen.